0: So, a couple of weeks back, we started a theme that's really going to carry us into the fall about deeper, wider, higher. And we're in the first of that uh, trilogy there, talking about stories and diving deep into the stories to try to understand uh, what they mean, not only in their day, but into our own day and age as well. And so far, we've been looking at stories in the Old Testament After our two-week hiatus, when we get back in July, we'll be into the New Testament then and talk a little bit about some New Testament stories as well. So let me review just for a quick second. We've talked a little bit about Jonah, the racist prophet that didn't want to carry out the command to go uh, share the good news with the Ninevites. We talked about the beauty of Ruth's relationship with Naomi. We talked a little bit about the binding of Isaac by Abraham Last week we talked about the brutality of Samson, and today what we're going to talk about is the healing of a man by the name of Naaman. Now, we just heard that story out of 2 Kings chapter 5, and I want to sort through it a little bit. So we've been talking about how stories work on different levels, and it's almost like a water analogy. Uh, We can swim above the surface, we can snorkel below the surface, or we can do a deep dive like a scuba diver. So we're going to use that outline again uh, for our story today, and we'll kind of break it down in terms of what it meant in that particular era and how we transfer it into our own day. So first of all, let's swim for a moment. Let's look at some of the uh, basic information of the story So in 2 Kings, you have the ongoing ministry of the Old Testament prophets. And there was a prophet by the name of Elijah, who constantly was in confrontation with the prophets of Baal. And it was time for his ministry to end, and he had an apprentice by the name of Elisha. And Elisha takes the mantle of Elijah and prays for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And so 2 Kings picks up that theme where Elisha succeeds Elijah. And what we find is in 2 Kings, we are given a collage, really, of different miracles that Elisha performs. And you find those in chapter 4 of 2 Kings, and we won't talk about those, but there's some interesting miracles that Elisha performs in chapter 4. And then all of a sudden, this spotlight comes on this man by the name of Naaman, and it's given a lot of text because I think the story is critically important to not only what Elisha was doing in his own day and age, but we'll find that this is the story that Jesus references when he goes to the synagogue on a Sunday Uh, or Saturday, rather, day under Jewish calendar. Uh, On a particular day, he picks up the scroll of Isaiah. He reads out of Isaiah chapter 61, and then he says, this is being fulfilled in your hearing, and then he references this story about the healing of Naaman. So in 2 Kings chapter 5, this story begins really By spotlighting this man, Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. Aram is an area uh, that is more commonly known as Syria in our own vernacular. And this man, Naaman, was a military commander. He was a general. He was an individual that led a lot of battles for the sake of his king. This particular story is... Remarkably entertaining if we stop and ponder it. Uh, It's a drama that's filled with a rich cast of characters, uh, has some ironic twists and turns to it, a little bit of comic relief, but some keen insights into human flaws of all of us and what we carry inside of us. And it shows us really God's inclusivity that would include the healing of a man that was an enemy of the nation of Israel. So as we look at that, we need to think a little bit about Naaman as a highly regarded warrior. He has a common ailment in his day and age, a skin disease. We often call it leprosy. Uh, In our own day and age, sometimes it's been referred to as Hansen's disease, uh, those type of things. But... What's important is in that day and age, if you had this type of skin disease, especially within the nation of Israel, you were an outcast from the community. So keep that in the back of your mind. You became an outcast until you were healed. But I think it's important to know that Naaman was a hometown hero. Unfortunately, we see that in the course of battle and war, there are slaves that are taken. And the first spotlight is... After he sees that he has this skin disease, there's this young woman that had been taken captive as part of the spoils of war, and she was an Israelite, and she enters into the story here. So we've got to dive a little bit deeper into this. So Israel had numerous enemies, uh, as the story of the Old Testament tells us. Naaman, though takes one of the Israelite women and makes her the slave girl of his wife. Now here's what's ironic. One day Naaman wakes up, he looks in the mirror and he sees some spots on his face. And he doesn't know what it is, but there is some concern. And as we see in the text here, the writer of 2 Kings said that he had leprosy. Now, what is he going to do? Think about this for a moment. If you're an outcast in society because you have this type of skin disease, what's going to happen to this man's illustrious career? Uh, It is going to go down the drain. His career might be threatened by this affliction. So this slave girl speaks up and says to him, there's this prophet back from where I come from, in the promised land. And there is a a work of God that is being done through this prophet by the name of Elisha. And so she says, why don't you go and see if he can help you? Well, the first thing Naaman does as a commander is he makes sure he gets permission from the king of Aram, because this is something he knows is going to need a little bit of a diplomatic uh, transition to take place. If he just marches into town without a letter saying that he's here to see the prophet Elisha, uh, those that see him coming with his large entourage of horses and chariots and that type of thing might think that he's coming to war again. So the king of Aram writes this letter and he goes to the king of Israel And as he comes to the king of Israel, the king of Israel reads the letter. And the letter basically states that I'm expecting you to heal my general. Well, the king of Israel is full of fear because he thinks this is a pretext for war again. You see, he doesn't have any ability to heal Naaman. And so he despairs because he thinks... That if Naaman goes back to his hometown, that becomes a pretext for uh, the king of Aram to send another army in and finish off the job. So the king of Israel is rubbing his hands together and then Elisha hears that this uh, general has come into town and he offers his services to see this man um, Naaman. So Naaman, with his huge entourage, his military parade showing off all of his power, comes to the house of Elisha. As he comes to the house of Elisha, Elisha doesn't even get up out of his chair to go out and meet Naaman. And so Naaman is expecting this huge welcome, oh it's so great to meet you, uh, Naaman, i heard of all of your conquests. He's sort of a military celebrity. Uh, But Elisha says, nah. He sends his messenger out to Naaman after hearing that Naaman has leprosy. And he says, hey, go down to the river Jordan. Dip yourself seven times in the river and you'll come up and you'll be cleansed. Well, Naaman gets all irritated and offended. Because he goes, he didn't even come out to meet me, right? And now he's telling me to go and dip down in the muddy waters of the Jordan River. If, I, if that was going to heal me, we have better river, rivers back home, right? So he's about ready to turn away and head back home. And some of his uh, associates there said, now if Elisha had told you some great thing to do, you probably would have done it, right? Why don't you do this simple thing and just go down and get into the Jordan River, go down and up seven times and let's see what happens. And Naaman's going, he's expecting um, this, this grand type of healing miracle. He expects Elisha to put his hand on him and to somehow say some magic words and he's going to be healed. Doesn't happen. So Naaman goes to the river He goes down seven times, he comes back up, and on the seventh time, he looks at his skin and it begins to clear up. And the text says that his skin was as soft as a young boy. Isn't that fascinating, the description? That now he has been healed, Uh, he has listened to what Elisha has had to say and even though it wasn't a big production, it was something really that seemed quite simple, yet he is healed. The treatment has worked. So Naaman knows that in his world, everything is done by a, 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 a quid pro quo. So he goes back to Elisha and he says, Here, let me give you money, let me give you clothing. I want to pay you for all that you have done for me, right? This time Elisha meets him face to face and says, I'm not going to take any of that. I'm not taking a a cent from you. This is what God has done for you. Naaman is kind of converted, if you will. He has a change of heart and he goes, Now I know that the God of Israel is the true God. And I promise that when I get back home, the God of Israel is going to be the only God that I worship. So he says to Elisha, there's one thing that I know. I'm going to worship this God of Israel, but I can't come back here to offer sacrifices. Can you pack up two mules of some of the earth from this territory and I'll take it back and that will consecrate the dirt in my hometown where I can make sacrifices to Yahweh. So two mules carry this dirt and they're heading back and a servant of Elisha hears word that Naaman is on his way back home and he's running after him and to, uh, to Gehazi he goes well hey He he owes us certain things for what has happened to him. So what happens is, even though Naaman was ready to make an offering to Elisha, he is an individual that is on his way home, and Gehazi decides he's going to take advantage of the situation. So he runs after him and he says, Hey, there's two prophets over here. They're kind of down on their luck. They could use a couple sets of clothes and some money. And so Naaman says, Okay. Gives it to him and he heads back. And so Elisha hears that uh, Gehazi went out and met Naaman and he says to Gehazi, What on earth are you doing? Why did you run after him and stuff? And Gehazi had taken what Naaman had given And didn't give it to the two prophets because he was basically lying. And he was trying to gain all of this for himself. He hid it away in his house. And what happens now is Elisha has the ability to know that Gehazi is lying. And so by the end of the story he says, You know, the leprosy that Naaman had is going to stick to your skin now. And that's the way the story ends. And so what we find is, there's a couple of things that's going on. Gehazi was all about profit, was all about getting something, using Elisha in the process. Now to complete the story of Naaman though, Naaman, when he gets back home, he understands something. There's a god, a storm god, by the name of Raman, that was going to have a big festival and so he is asking Elisha for forgiveness, that he's going to attend this festival no matter what. And he says, I'm still going to kind of keep my theological fingers crossed behind my back, right? I know the God of Israel is the one true God, but but I need to go and I need to make an offering to Ramon because that's what's expected of me in my position within this empire. So what we find taking place is... Now, Elisha condemns Gehazi, but he doesn't condemn Naaman. Isn't that fascinating? After after Naaman says to him, please forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down and he's leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. In other words, he's saying, I already know what I'm going to do. Can you forgive me? And notice the way Elisha responds. He says, go in peace. In other words, Naaman still had some growing to do, and what he is doing is offering the peace or shalom of God to Naaman. But to Gehazi, he says, you know better, right? You know better than to do this. You know better than to use God for profit. And he says, you will become leprous. Now, let's think about this for a moment. You would think that Elisha would commend his own servant, Gehazi, and would condemn Naaman for going back to a false god, but he doesn't. You see, love will win and defeat every other disability, whether it's socially or emotionally, if we understand love matters more than being right. Elisha could have sat Naaman down and said, let me tell you, let me set you straight on this about going back, but he doesn't. What he does do is he recognizes that his act of love and his act of grace might create a better relationship between Israel and Syria, and could this potentially head off another potential battle or war? So what is happening here, if we can kind of uh, move ahead a little bit, is in the New Testament, Luke chapter 4, verses 27 through 29, Jesus references this story. Now what has he done prior? He stands up in the synagogue, he takes the scroll of Isaiah, he opens it up, he reads it, And after he reads it, he omits or edits a line. The line that he omits out of Isaiah the prophet is about vengeance, taking vengeance upon someone else. So he sits, rolls down, uh, rolls up the scroll, sits down. He says, hey, this is being fulfilled in your hearing. I am the one that's carrying on the spirit of Elijah and Elisha that began so long ago. Then the people are all amazed, and they want to uh, rally around him. But he says, you need to know something. You need to know. There were many lepers in Israel during the time of Elisha, but God chose to only heal one, Naaman, the mighty general of the king of Aram. And at that moment, the people turned on Jesus, and it says in Luke chapter 4, they drove him to the edge of the town, and they wanted to throw him off the cliff, Because he was talking about God's grace for who they hated. Okay? Keep that in the back of your mind. Jesus is saying that grace is something that is not just deserving of who we think is worthy. But grace is available for all individuals. And what he wants to do is show that God has been in this business all the way back to the time of Elijah and Elisha, and what he does is he begins to show that Gehazi's more about greed than grace, but Elisha is more about grace than greed. Boy, that's a message we need to hear in our day and age, right? When institutions all around us is it's all about the money, Lebowski, right? It's always about the money. It's always about the bottom line. It's always about how much money we can, we can get or uh, extract out of other people. But Jesus and Elisha are showing us that there is something greater than what we think we need the most. And I think we all think we need more money. But what we all need is more grace, right? We all need more grace. Grace. Because it's not just Naaman that needs to be healed, it's my heart that needs to be healed too. And I think that this story is telling us that Naaman is a real human being that needs God's kindness, God's love, and God's grace. And Elisha could have easily not told him how to be healed because he was an enemy. Elisha's instructions seemed ridiculous, actually. And Naaman's pride is wounded. Yet, Naaman is restored with a simple act of faith. No matter how much it was working against him internally. He goes, he dips below the water, and he comes up, and he is healed. So what we find is that all of a sudden, this picture is being painted of how we get along in the world. And that is, we begin to understand that everybody has a story that they carry. Naaman had one. And that story is such that he needed somebody to hear that story and to respond to it. It was once said, an enemy is someone whose story you refuse to hear. In other words, everybody has a backstory. And if we can understand it, and if we can begin to identify with it, then all of a sudden we find that we have some things in common as a human family. None of us are perfect. We're all in need of healing. We're all in need of grace. And so I think what is happening in the case of Elisha and Jesus, they choose to bring wholeness and healing to someone that we would rather push away. Jesus is challenging that insider-outsider mentality that is often used to objectify people that are different than us. We are being invited to live into a bigger story. Naaman is not the only one that needs healing. We all do, because we all have a smaller heart than what we should have. And notice Elisha understands that it will take time for Naaman to grow. He says, go in peace. And it takes time for all of us to grow and to learn. But what can we do in the meantime? Elisha gives kind of this zone of shalom, of peace. And he releases healing upon Naaman. And he makes a contribution to the common good because it's going to better the relationship between Syria and Israel. He gives praise to God. And as he does so there is the possibility that these two warring nations might be able to find a peace settlement between them. But most of all, there's an abundance from God, using the name that's in the Old Testament, Yahweh is the name for God, an abundance from Yahweh for all people. So let's think about this as we wrap this up. I think until we are all captivated by the radical mercy of God that's extended to all people, we will continue to cling to those attitudes of judgment, cling to those attitudes of rejection. I guess we all need to wash off the leprosy of blame and hatred and greed. And we're to come up out of the water as new people or to come up out of the water as soft as a young boy. You know, in the New Testament, that really becomes kind of a symbolism of the ordinance of baptism. It is saying, God, I need your love. I need your forgiveness. I need your healing. And when you dip below the waters, it's as if you're dying to that old life and you're being resurrected to a new life. So, In the church, there are two ordinances that are regularly observed. One is the Lord's uh, table, and the other is baptism. And they are both very meaningful, because in baptism, it's kind of like the beginning of a new journey. And we're telling the world, I'm not perfect, and I've got a lot of growth to do, but I'm coming out of this as a new person. I want to be cleansed. I want to begin again. I want to take all those scars, I want to take all those blemishes, I want to take all of that which tends for me to look down and judge and blame and scapegoat other people. I want to be free from that. And I want God to enlarge my heart to love better and to serve better. And so, you know, sometimes um, I have the opportunity to uh, baptize people. They've never been baptized, and it's an opportunity to kind of initiate a new start. And I've done that to infants uh, most recently, um, and to adults as well. And uh, if you have interest in that, uh, we might be able to arrange something to be able to uh, participate in that. We're going to take the Lord's table in a moment, but As we sang about God doing greater things, we all have a tendency to shrink God down to manageable size. And we need to get a bigger vision of God because God is always up to something bigger and better and more shocking, I think, than we can ever realize within our human limitations. And then we step into that. The other thing I want to think about here as we close um, is... About healing for a moment. I think we look back to the biblical text, and I don't know about you, but I think wouldn't it be something if we lived in a day and an age where we actually saw God do some physical healing uh, for people that are in such dire uh, straits? Um, We have a niece uh, that's in need of a healing touch. She's Going to be waiting for a heart transplant because um, chemotherapy damaged her heart many years ago. Um, You know individuals, Dawn was talking about her brother who's having a kidney removed tomorrow, uh, surgically, who's going to need God's healing touch. And we don't come with bells and whistles and fireworks and say, you know, abracadabra, you know. But what we do is we lift people that we love, and you know them, and I know them. You have friends or relatives that need God to heal them and to touch them and to raise them up. And so I want to have a healing prayer for a moment, then we're going to take the Lord's table, and uh, then we will conclude our service together. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? We bring before you, Lord God, those for whom pain is their greatest problem. It might be physically, it might be emotionally, or maybe even relationally. They might be remembered more for their distress than their potential. They might be individuals that cry at night, I wish to God it were morning, and in the morning cry, I wish to God it were night. Lord Jesus, lover of all people, bring healing, bring peace upon those that we love. We bring before you those whose experience from light has turned to darkness because of their circumstances. And in their silence, they don't know where to turn or maybe whom to trust. We ask, Lord God, that their troubles might be part of the burden that we carry. That we might lift them up in our thoughts and in our prayers. Lord God, you alone know the cure for every sickness, bring healing and bring peace upon those that we love. So we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, whose flesh and blood brings healing and wholeness, the one who is our gentle healer. And as we come to the table, and we take a piece of bread, and we take a cup, we are reminded so long ago of when Jesus gave his body and his blood as a way of showing his love for mankind We thank you that the ultimate healing is not just physical, but it really is spiritual because it is something that allows us to start again, to start over. So as we take the bread and the cup, we pray, Lord God, that you'll refresh us and heal us and bring to us newness of joy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.